from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Shuck. I'm a minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I was elected to be commissioner at the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church this summer. Resolutions are sent to the General Assembly for action, and these resolutions often request the denomination to take a stand and to advocate for various issues. Perhaps the most controversial resolutions before the General Assembly this year will be those asking the Presbyterian Church to take action regarding the situation in Israel-Palestine, including divesting from companies that profit from Israel's occupation of the West Bank. For the next four weeks, Religion for Life will focus on Israel-Palestine. My guests include Rachel Fish of the Schusterman Center at Brandeis University, Rabbi Brant Rosen of Jewish Voices for Peace, and Jonathan Kutab of the Bethlehem Bible College. You'll hear very different perspectives regarding Zionism and the situation in Israel-Palestine. It will be a balanced approach. I will allow my guests to speak for themselves, and you can make up your own mind. This will not only be a series of broadcasts for the commissioners of the Presbyterian Church, but for everyone seeking to learn more about Israel-Palestine. All of these broadcasts will be available on podcast after they air on the stations. My first guest is Rachel Fish. She's the Associate Director of the Schusterman Center of Brandeis University. She recently completed her doctoral degree in Near Eastern and Judaic Studies Department at Brandeis. Her dissertation, Configurations of Binationalism, the Transformation of Binationalism in Palestine-Israel, 1920s to the Present, examines the history of the idea of binationalism and alternative visions for constructing the state of Israel. Rachel has worked as an educator and consultant in various capacities in the Jewish community and higher education, teaching about Zionism and Israeli history at Brandeis University. She's appeared on CBS Evening News, NPR's All Things Considered, and published in the Wall Street Journal. Through her activist work, Rachel Fish was named one of the Forward 50, a list of the 50 most influential Jews in America in 2003. And she's also a graduate of Science Hill High School in Johnson City, Johnson City, Tennessee, where this broadcast originates. Welcome, Dr. Fish, to Religion for Life. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you are an associate uh, director for the Schusterman Center at Brandeis University. What is uh, the Schusterman Center, and what's your role there? Sure. So the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies was founded in 2007 at Brandeis University, and we are dedicated to promoting exemplary teaching and scholarship in the field of Israel Studies, which is an interdisciplinary field. So this includes Israeli history, politics, culture, and society, as well as other disciplines. The center is committed to advancing knowledge and understanding of the modern state of Israel. We train the next generation of scholars and teachers through our doctoral program. We are very involved in creating and, in, and developing the discourse about Israel within the university community, both at Brandeis as well as on other campuses. We have publications. We support research. Uh, we have conferences on a regular basis, and we have programs to train faculty as well who are interested in integrating Israel into their own teaching on different campuses. So we have a summer program for that, and we're also beginning an Israel education initiative that works with individuals beyond the academy, such as educators, professionals, 
in Jewish communal life who are interested in thinking about how to talk about Israel, facilitate conversations about Israel, and transmit knowledge about Israel to their particular community of learners. So that encompasses the work of the Schusterman Center at Brandeis University. And, and uh, you just uh, completed or recently completed your dissertation. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, it's called Configurations of uh, Binationalism. Can you give us a, a little summary of that and, and maybe define binationalism for us? Sure. So I'll start by defining binationalism. Binationalism is understood in this context with a specific reference to the Israeli-Palestinian situation as one state for two peoples, the Jewish population and the Arab population residing within this particular contested territorial landscape. So that's the definition of binationalism, and that's in opposition to a two-state solution, meaning one state for the Jews, one state for the Arab population. So my dissertation examined how the idea of binationalism has emerged, how it has transformed over time, when it has resurfaced, and when it has not been as much or as prominent within the discourse of Zionism and Israeli history and thought. So beginning in the 1920s, prior to the creation of the State of Israel, the idea of binationalism was an idea that was very much within the Zionist camp, meaning the spiritual and cultural Zionists, people like Judah Magnus, Martin Buber, Hans Kohn, Achad Ha'am, those types of individuals, promoted their vision of Zionism through the idea of a binationalist construction within the framework of this territory. And the idea was based upon coexistence and cooperation between the two populations, recognizing that there was a desire for both populations to live in this region and that this land was important to both populations. Um, but the relationship between the two peoples would be based upon ways of mutual um, coexistence and cooperation and a, a relationship that encouraged um, synergy and, um, and ways to develop uh, the territory in a productive and fruitful manner together. Um, after the state is created, binationalism takes on a different face and that it becomes less of an accepted discourse within the Zionist camp because the state of Israel has been created. Political Zionism, meaning the idea of Zionism to form a sovereign political entity, had won the day, not a binationalist vision. So people like Theodore Herzl, Jabotinsky, uh, Ben-Gurion, the father of the modern state of Israel, these were the individuals who helped formulate the national sovereignty of Israel, what we now have as Israel. And binationalism was not part of that discourse because binationalism was very much a utopian, idealistic notion. So those who then were interested in a binationalist idea were on the peripheral margins of society. Um, they were still... There were still Jews who were advocating a binationalist idea, but it took on a different form than it had before the state was created. And it's important to understand and recognize that prior to the creation of the state of Israel, there were multiple Zionisms. 
Zionism mm-hmm. was not a monolithic movement. It still is not a monolithic movement, but particularly in the 1920s, you had political Zionists, you had cultural spiritual Zionists, you had religious Zionists. So you had a lot of different stripes of Zionism. And what that meant was that you had individuals who were really imagining what it would mean for Jews to be responsible to return as actors and have agency in history. Um, so this is, and when, and when binationalism was part of this conversation in the early stages of the Zionist movement, it was not seen as an anti-Zionist position because there were so many stripes of Zionism and so many different types of visions for how the state should be constructed and what the state could look like that this idea was just one of many. But over time, once the state has been formed and the other realities of state formation and state construction existed, binationalism took on a very different meaning by those who were advocating it, and that became very clear by the 1960s and to this day, in which binationalism today is often a euphemism for the idea of a one state and the idea of de-Zionization, de-Judaization of the state of Israel, meaning that the state of Israel would not have a Jewish character and that Zionism would not be the nationalist movement of the state anymore. So this is what I was looking at, and I did this um, through a historical lens as I am trained as a historian. Um, And the reason I studied this topic was because it was important to me to focus my research and the ideas that I was interested in exploring on a topic that still has relevance and significance today. And what we see is that the topic of binationalism has not disappeared, even though it does remain quite on the margins and is is advocated by a particular type of person, um, both within Jewish communities, within the Israeli community, and within the Arab Palestinian community, uh, but the fact that it's still discussed and part of the discourse in some capacity um, seemed to me to be a worthy um, investment of energy and time. So that's why um, this is what I studied. Well, thank you for that. That was very interesting. And and, and you mentioned about the, the various uh, kinds of, of Zionism, and that was my next question. What is Zionism and its relationship to Judaism, uh, perhaps uh, historically or, or today? Again, I would, I would step back um, a little bit and first look at Judaism and understand that Judaism is not a purely confessional identity, meaning mm-hmm. it's not just a religious identity. Judaism has always encompassed more than just religion. And when I say religion, I mean it in its very broadest sense. Um, So in terms of Judaism, that means, you know, the spiritual component that one has, whether it's an individual level, whether it's a communal interaction, um, the one's relationship to um, God. But it also means in terms of Judaism, how one relates to um, halakha, which means the observance of Jewish law. So Judaism, as a religion, has many components because there are many Jews who are not strict, do not follow strict observance to Jewish law, halakha, and they practice their Judaism in a more spiritual and cultural way. There are many Jews 
who practice Judaism and are part of a Jewish community but don't even believe in God. So when we talk about religion in general when it comes to Judaism, similar to other religions, um, it's not a simple black and white answer. And then when you mm -hmm. step back from just looking at religion and examine Judaism in a more encompassing way, we find that it has a cultural component, it has the religious component, it has a social component, and it has a national component. And it always has had those components. So Judaism is a catch-all for these different aspects of Jewish life. But the national piece is just as vital to the religious piece of Judaism. Now, Zionism was not part of the original idea of Judaism in the way that we know it today. So what does that mean? Zionism is part of the movement in the 20th century, late 19th century, of nationalisms in general. Nationalisms were sweeping throughout Europe. Nationalisms were a part of the conversation beginning in the late 19th century, early 20th century, not only in terms of Jews, but all different types of people, all different types of ethnic groups, and all different types of minority populations. And Zionism was one of many different types of nationalism that was formulated specifically for the Jewish people. Now, why Zionism was formulated, there are a few different reasons. First of all, there was always within Judaism, from the times of the early writings of the Torah, the Hebrew Scriptures, a, a strong draw to have an association with Sion and Eretz Israel. Those are the Hebrew words for Zion and the land of Israel. And the land of Israel in this context means the biblical land of Israel and what you read in the Hebrew scriptures of that territory. Mm -hmm. That draw and that connection that Jews have had towards Zion, Zion which also is another reference to um, Jerusalem, and Eretz Israel has been there from the early stages of Judaism. That is exemplified when you see that Jews lived in that territory, along with many other different types of ancient peoples, from Phoenicians and Canaanites to others. And twice the Jews were expelled and lost control over that sovereignty in 586 BCE and in 70 CE. And after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, and CE is the common era, we don't use AD, mm -hmm. um, and after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, Jews really were scattered, really living all over. And after that period in time, when Jews did not have sovereignty and did not have control over their own territorial space, they learned how to live as populations, minorities, within host societies. And that's when you begin to see rabbinic Judaism being formed and 
how Jews are organized themselves into different types of communities, how they build relationships with the host societies. And this is the diaspora um, political aspect of the Jewish community from 70 CE until the period of 1948 when Israel is established as the Jewish state. So first, that connection and that draw and attraction to the land of Israel comes from a religious place, a religious moment in time and religious space. Now, in terms of the modern state of Israel and the modern movement of Zionism, meaning Jewish nationalism, the idea of Jews creating a modern sovereignty for the Jewish people, this idea actually had two... Um, it had an impetus both in terms of a pull and a push. So what do I mean by that? The pull factor was that Jews had this connection to the land of Israel for so long. They wanted to reclaim, reconstitute themselves, return to that place, to history. So there was ideas by many Zionists, and especially the cultural and spiritual Zionists, but also some of the political Zionists, that by re-engaging in the act of building the nation-state would reinvigorate, would revitalize the Jewish community in general, from Palestine to all of the communities living in diaspora. And when I say Palestine here, I'm very specific that I'm using the... Um, chronological term, which at this time is Palestine. It's not yet Israel, but it doesn't mean that I'm referencing a Palestinian place. This mm -hmm. is during the manda mandatory period of um, the British Mandate period. The push factor was the fact that Jews living in host societies had faced and were continuing to face serious issues of persecution and discrimination. And that was clearly evident beginning in early as medieval times in Europe, in which blood libels against Jews were used against them. You see this for sure in the 19th, 18th centuries in terms of pogroms. Um, you see this in Tsarist Russia. And there's a Jewish history of persecution, anti-Semitism, and of course this is um, ultimately the pinnacle of it becomes what happens during the Holocaust. But the idea being, even before the events of the Holocaust and the atrocities that took place, that Jews living in host societies would never be able to have complete autonomy and the ability to be full citizens of the state. Now, Theodore Herzl, who's often considered the um, father of political Zionism, was very much an assimilated Jew. He did not have any Jewish traditional religious upbringing. He was not connected to Judaism in a religious or spiritual manner. And what he found was that Zionism, 
he believed could be a solution to the Jewish problem. And for him, the Jewish problem was that no matter what the Jews did, they would never fully be able to integrate into the host societies in which they lived. And therefore, he felt that if Jews were able to have a nation state of their own and to have control over their own national interests, then they could normalize. And that was an important word for Theodore Herzl. He wanted Jews and a Jewish sovereignty to be a normalized aspect within the community of nations. And he saw this in a similar fashion as he saw other national movements taking place. But this was the reason he believed Zionism was needed and necessary. And it was actually the turning point for Herzl for this idea was when he was serving as a journalist and writing about the Dreyfus Affair, which was an incident in which a Jewish French soldier was accused of treason. And this man, Dreyfus, was a high-ranking official in the French army. And Herzl couldn't believe that the people in the streets were basically forming a mob, yelling about Herzl about Dreyfus being a traitor, down with the Jews, and he felt like in France, if Jews can't integrate, and if a high-ranking army official like Dreyfus, ultimately it comes back to him being Jewish, and he's accused of treason because of his Jewish identity, then there's no hope for any European country in which Jews live. And therefore, he felt that it was imperative that the Jews have their own nation-state that they controlled and that they were able to um, to develop and to create so that they were no longer dependent upon other individuals. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Rachel Fish. She's the Associate Director of the Schusterman Center at Brandeis University, uh, talking about Judaism and Zionism and uh, gave a, a history just now of Zionism. And, and the question is, of course, is that we have two people uh, living in, in the land of Israel, Palestine. What do you see uh, amidst all of this history as a possible way forward for a just peace for both uh, Palestinians and Jews? Look, it's a very complicated situation. And as you know, it's a difficult question and a question that has befuddled many. So I don't know if I'm necessarily capable of providing a sufficient answer. As we saw, John Kerry recently attempted to do so and wasn't able to. Um, What I would say is that it's very clear you have an Israeli Jewish population and also an Israeli Arab population who are citizens of the modern state of Israel. The state of Israel is not going away. So the Palestinian population also is not going away. And it's very clear there are national aspirations for the Palestinian population. In order to create a just society for both peoples, it will have to be based upon creating two states for two peoples, which was clearly outlined as early as 1936 in the Peel Commission report written by the British authorities during the mandatory period of Palestine. It was reiterated again in the 1947 United Nations General Assembly um, Declaration with UN 181, in which it was clearly stated there should be a Jewish state and an Arab state. These two populations deserve their own political 
sovereignty. And only when they have those entities will there be any progress in towards, towards future peaceful relations. I will add one other thing, though. In terms of the prospects for those peaceful relations, it is imperative that the Palestinian people have leadership that's capable of making difficult decisions and that is willing to make compromise. Because without compromise, that will not happen for them. The Palestinians have not had the David Ben-Gurion. They have not had a mother or father who's willing to be the founder of the modern state of Palestine. And the people who suffer because of that are the Palestinian people. Do you see any uh, signs of hope or constructive efforts between Israelis and Palestinians going on today? There are many signs of hope in terms of positive relations between Palestinians and Israelis. First of all, on a very basic level, if you just look at the Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel and how they have thrived within Israeli society, and it's not to say that there's complete equality by any means. There are always challenges when there is a minority population living in amongst others. We see that in America. We see that throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. However, that being said, the ways in which the Palestinian Arab citizens have integrated into Israeli society, the opportunities that they've had in terms of the educational infrastructure that they are able to take advantage of and be part of within the Israeli system is unparalleled to anything within the Palestinian territories at this point in time. So I think that the Palestinians living in the West Bank and living in Gaza can actually learn a lot from their brethren who have been integrated and are part of Israeli society. There are also a lot of conversations that take place. There's dialogue on a regular basis. There's a lot of economic cooperation at a very high level between Israeli business leaders and Palestinian business leaders. The issue really is about politics because that's where there's a failure, not so much actually in the one-to-one relationships that exist on the ground. So your, your uh, thesis was about uh, configurations of binationalism. Is something like that still possible for uh, Israel-Palestine, or is that something that's, that's long past? It's long past. First of all, it was never a feasible reality, and it was very much a utopian ideal. I would also add that there are very few contested areas and territories in which a binational framework exists that actually succeeds. And we see that throughout Europe even, that even places like Czechoslovakia, ultimately you had to separate the population. Um, there, when you have two populations vying for the same territory, a binational framework will not succeed and will only lead to bigger issues, both in terms of identity of the state, demographics, the democratic nature of the state. We don't know yet if a Palestinian state will be democratic. We hope, but if we look at what's happening in the Arab world in general, we shouldn't be holding our breath. So there are way too many issues to even consider forming a binational framework, and those who proffer such an idea today have two agenda items that they're pushing. Either they are completely disillusioned and they don't understand understand that this is a fantasy, or they are doing something much more dangerous in which they are actually trying to create a place in which 
they are delegitimizing the current state of Israel and do not and want to deconstruct it as a Jewish state so that it no longer exists. Rachel Fish, the associate director of the Schusterman Center at Brandeis University, uh, has been my guest on Religion for Life. Uh, Rachel, I would love to talk with you a lot more, but our time is up. But I, I thank you for uh, your work and for being with me today on Religion for Life. Thank you. I appreciate it, and I look forward to a continued conversation. And I will continue my conversation with Dr. Fish in the third program. Next week, my guest is Jonathan Kutab. He's a Palestinian Christian and a human rights attorney. My name is John Shuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabeth. Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. More information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts, can be found at religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. Be well.